Welcome to the Urban Income Show, where we speak with minority CEOs, CMOs, CTOs, founders, and other executives to learn about their strategies for success. I'm your host, Laval Chichester, the CEO of Growth Skills and Urban Income. Today's episode features Amanda Natividad. Uh, Amanda is the VP of Marketing for an audience research startup called Sparkturo. Before that, she led marketing for Growth Machine and Lift. Lift Topia, and she also built Fitbit's B2B content program and led and led content and communications for NatureBox. Um, in her spare time, Amanda writes a marketing newsletter called The Menu, which has over 10,000 subscribers, and she teaches marketing courses, a marketing course called Content Marketing 201. Amanda is also a contributor for Adweek and so much more. Amanda, we're excited to have you. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Laval. Absolutely. And um, so so how do you introduce yourself to people? Because, you know, I basically just butchered your intro, but you also have a ton of other things that you do, right? You're a trained chef, like you were a journalist in, in a past life. So tell us about yourself. Yeah. I mean, I guess it depends on the context, right? Um Usually I just say, oh, I work in marketing, and then I hope they don't really ask further questions <laughs> because I usually feel like it's boring to talk about your work unless you're talking to other peers about you know, right. the work that you're both are doing. Um, but for the purpose of the purposes of this show, I think I would say um, I'm a second generation immigrant. Um when I was when I was born, I think my family was more in like lower middle class tier kind of slowly over the course of my life, my family worked their way up to upper middle class, I think. Um, and so, I mean, a lot of that really shapes how I see the world of work, how I see, you know, managing money, I guess, sure. so to speak, and just sort of shapes how I, my spending habits. So maybe I would just kind of start there. <laughs> Absolutely. And so what's your background? Where were you born? And has that affected you? your career and, and, and your work? Yeah. Uh, I was born in SoCal, uh, you know, grew up in Los Angeles and maybe the thing that sort of, uh, that, that shaped a lot of people who grew up in Los Angeles is, you know, the dominant industry is obviously the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. And it's not that everybody is raised to believe they should work as an actor or anything like that, but it's something that's very pervasive and it's, it's not uncommon to have classmates or their parents who all work in the industry or are aspiring actors or, you know, they're writers or they work, they work in the crew or things like that. So that's a, because of the dominant culture, that's sort of what's normal here. Right. Although, you know, uh, although LA is very diverse, not just ethnically, but also with respect to occupations. So there are a lot of very different kinds of jobs. Um, and I think, you know, I was also the, the third kid in my family, the youngest. And so I think by the time I came along, my parents were, they were in a more financially secure space and they, you know, have always, have had always raised me to have strong values and care about the quality of work slash school. But at the same time, I think by the time I came along, they were very much like, you know, do the job or grow up to be who you want to be. Be nice if you'd be a doctor, but you don't have to be. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> 
Where it'd be number nice. Number two child, were they forced into like doctor lawyer? Did they get that? Um, uh, they were kind of forced into my dad's occupation, or like not forced, right? But they were sort of like, yeah. "Hey, do you want to be an accountant, just like your dad?" Yeah. <laughs> there was a little bit of that, but by the time I came along, I think they were like, "Oh, we have the accountant. We're set there. You could be a doctor, or like." You like to read, maybe you'll be a lawyer. Like you don't have to do those things, but yeah. maybe you want to. <laughs> That's amazing. And um and you from a gender standpoint, you do you identify as female? And so and and what's your nationality? You're American, but what are, what are your parents? Oh, uh they're Filipino. Okay, so Filipino. And um and so did any of that? So how did you actually then get into marketing? So you you dodged the the all the pressure for a doctor <laughs> lawyer, uh, and then you dodged the the being a, an actor or working in Hollywood. So then how how did you stumble upon marketing? Yeah, so maybe the the I guess adjacent industry to entertainment that I was already interested in was writing or that the adjacent occupation. And that was something that I always had a predilection for, just even as a kindergartner. Like I was starting to write short stories. It didn't really make sense, of course, because I was in kindergarten. But my parents noticed it and they were like, Oh, that's really cool that you can you can read and you can write. And they were always very, very supportive of that. Um like growing up it was uh, if I wanted a new toy, I had to like make the case for it or, or it was only on your birthday or a special occasion. But when it came to books, it was always unlimited books. My parents would always take me to the library or if we were at a bookstore, they'd be like, buy whatever you want. No limit. Like, don't care. Get whatever you want. If it was an Archie comic, then they would be like, all right, maybe just one, but you got to get some real books. <laughs> but they never, ever limited it. They never gave any indication that they wanted me to like temper my reading habits. They were always just very much like whatever you want, sky's the limit, which was really helpful uh, for my upbringing, right? for building up my skills. So um, with that, like I, by the time college rolled around, I, I thought I wanted to be a journalist. So I was like, oh, I'm a writer. I'm going to be a journalist. Like, here's what I want to do. And that was what I set out to do at first and started out my career in like tech news journalism. And, you know, I was making a decent living. I was, I was supporting myself, no longer financially dependent on my parents. And with that, they were like, well, you're an adult. You can do what you want to do. And along the way, I just kind of realized that I didn't want to be a journalist anymore. Like it wasn't, it wasn't my life's work so to speak. And I thought I wanted to be a food writer. So I went into that first and then quickly realized that food writing jobs are very limited in availability and then kind of pivoted to marketing. And I think by that point, my parents were just sort of like, yeah, you're, you seem like kind of tech savvy. You kind of know how websites work. You're already on social media. So I think for them, they were like, oh, that makes sense to me. Like you should be a marketer. Although my dad was like, oh, then you should start your own agency, have your own business, and you should you should be your own boss. And I was like, mm, maybe. And that could still happen in the future, right? But they were always very supportive of that, even if they didn't always agree with what I did, right? Like when I wanted to do food writing, they were like, why? Like, okay, I, I trust you. You're an adult, but that sounds not great. <laughs> but yeah. But, and cooking seems to be a passion of yours. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, like I, I, I had always kind of liked 
cooking or I, I like baking with my mom growing up. That was always fun. And then by the time I was like in my 20s and like living on my own, I obviously had to cook. And I discovered a passion for it then. And when I decided to that I wanted to be a food writer, what I did was I enrolled in culinary school nearby. I went to La Cordon Bleu in their part-time program. So I kept my full-time job, you know, nine to five, but I was working from home. And then at five o'clock, changed to my chef uniform or my cook's uniform, go over to school and be there until like maybe like I think 11 p.m. most wow. nights. Yeah, it was it was a grind, a but but it was and I think it was every I think it was every weeknight. Um yeah, every weeknight. And it was a lot of work, right? It was a lot to do, but it was fun. Like because it was the thing that I wanted to do and because it was different work, right? Sitting at a desk all day and then cooking all night like in the setting that is optimized for cooking, right? Because it, it is a little bit different from just slaving away in your kitchen. Like that's that's a different feeling. But I was like at a place, I was in my uniform with other students. So it was a change of environment and pace that it didn't feel exhausting in a way that one might think. Like, yeah, when I came home, I was tired. I wanted to go to sleep, but I wasn't like burnt out tired. It was just like, oh, I'm, I had a full day. Um, so that was, and I, I was, I did that because that was nine months of like in-class work. And I was also like in my mid twenties. So I was like, this is going to be the only time in my life that I have time for this. Like I've kind of always wanted to go to culinary school. And like at the time, before I enrolled, I, I, I kind of just wrote it off as, yeah, if I were like super rich and like had all the money and could just have fun hobbies, I'd go to culinary school. But I never looked at how much it cost to go. So when I did, I was like, oh, it was about $10,000 for the cost of the program, which I was like, oh, I just kind of assumed it was like twenty dollars or $30,000. And I was like, okay, $10,000 isn't, it's not nothing. But it was something that I was like, oh, I could take a loan for this, like do some, you know, financial aid pay it off. And like, that doesn't, that sounds like actually very attainable. And that was when I decided to just go for it and was like, look, I'm, who knows where I'm going to be in like five or 10 years. What if I like get married and have kids? Like, I'm not going to have time for this then. So might as well do it when I'm single and like have nothing to lose. So yeah. yeah. That's awesome. So just for everyone listening, just go for it. <laughs> you had a dream and get it done. Like, you know, life is short, I would say. There's, a, you know, there's chapters in your life. So the more you can do. Um, and, and what's interesting about that is that, that, well, do you think that work that you did and learning how to cook and, and all of that, does it help your current career and, and job and, and everything that you're doing now from a content standpoint? I think it does. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it definitely helped as like a general professional development tactic in that you know when you're like when you're cooking in a kitchen like in a professional type of setting even educational professional right like you have to collaborate with people that you might not have chosen to collaborate with right just like it's a bunch of random people and you're all working towards the same thing you might not be friends but it doesn't matter right you have to work together so there was the element of that, like you just got to make it work with people. You have very tight deadlines. Like, you know, you got to make, you got to make mashed potatoes from scratch. 
you have 20 minutes too bad you have to get it done right there's like there's that f- very finite time frames and also just the things like you got to move fast things are hot knives are sharp got to be careful you have a, a chef instructor yelling at you like do it right or this sauce tastes terrible and you got to just keep moving and i think what i learned was I, a, an important thing i learned was not taking feedback personally like if if your sauce sucks and the chef instructor is saying, hey, this sucks, you have to accept it. Like You have to be like, all right, I got to make it better. And there isn't time to be like, oh, that made me sad. <laughs> and, and it's also like you also learn quickly, like it's not it, it's not personal. If your sauce sucks, your sauce sucks. You don't suck. <laughs> it's the food. And like you can make that thing better. And that's OK. That's what that's why you're in this setting. So. I think it just gave me a safe space to like get yelled at, <laughs> but not take it personally. Like I, ne- I never felt deme- demeaned or less than because that sort of these knife cuts are bad. The sauce is bad. You burn that roast, all those things that wasn't projected onto us by our class or gender or things like that. It was just, you are an inexperienced cook. Therefore, these things are not good, and here's how to make it better. So, yeah. No, that's true. That's a good. That's a good thing, though. I think a lot of people take a lot of things personal, especially feedback. And, and I think one of one the only way to learn is actually being able to take feedback and 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 learn from it and actually apply um, the the important things so that you could actually grow right and, and make the change, make the dish better. Um, yeah, I think I think that's extremely important. And then so you you got into marketing. Um, so in that journey, like, how did you get into marketing? And then how? What advice would you give to anyone listening about how they could break into marketing, especially around the tech sector? Because I think it's a little harder to get into versus like general marketing, because a lot of those jobs are prestigious working for these companies. Yeah, I think. Well, I mean, it was. It is funny that in hindsight, that marketing was the backup plan, that it was like, oh, I didn't get to be a food writer. Maybe I should do this other thing that I think I'm qualified to do. And I had adjacent skills, like in my tech journalism job, it was more of like a behind the scenes type of editor producer role. And um, so the thing I had also done in that job was manage the social media accounts. We also did... uh, industry conferences a couple times a year and I was responsible for programming the conferences and marketing it so I had some like marketing like the uh, like tactical skills that I had to develop so when I came in when I pivoted to marketing I wasn't totally new at it even though I was pretty new and so what I ended up doing was I used my like journalism skills or you know knowledge to first make a spreadsheet of well-funded or just funded companies in the food tech sectors. Cause I was, I was really interested in food. I was like, well, I want to work in this industry. I think it'll be fun. And then the other thing was as I was trying to find that food writing job, I started just picking up random freelance work in writing or even just in helping to manage like restaurants or small businesses, social media accounts. And this was, you know, this was a long time ago. So this was before, like Facebook ads were what they are today, right? Where where this was back when 
posting on social media as a brand was sort of just you just posted like no one was trying to be like wendy's yet <laughs> it was all pretty basic so i mean i'll admit like that it was it was easier back then to to do social media as a brand um but you know i made a list of those funded companies and then just started job hunting and like looking for like i looked for like entry to like mid-level jobs because i thought like well i am already like in my mid to late I was like, I was like, I think I was like 26, 27 at the time. So I was like, well, I'm not the same as a college graduate. Like I have, I have more professional experience than that. So I was kind of going for like early marketing roles, but not necessarily marketing coordinator. And then sending a bunch of cold emails to pitch my skills. And it was very much just like, look, I don't have classical like marketing training, but I do have some of these skills. Here's some evidence of that are you willing to consider me for a role on your team? And a lot of the roles that I was looking at were social media and content marketing roles. And this was also a time in content marketing where the landscape was people were kind of just starting to really create high quality content. Like it was starting to go beyond the typical kind of SEO driven, like, what is this? This is that. Like those types of articles, it was like starting to go beyond that, where I think in my journalism background, I had a sort of competitive edge in that I knew how to write good content, like calling sources, you know, asking for customer quotes, um, getting like doing some third party like, research or like reading third party research and incorporating that into articles. Like those were all things that were intuitive to me as a journalist that I think a lot of people at the time who came into content marketing by way of SEO were kind of just starting to learn how to do that stuff. So I came into it like with the skill set of like, oh, here's what it takes to make actually good content that's authoritative, that people actually will read, that is written decently so it doesn't look like some weirdo wrote it, right? Um, and that was what really helped a lot. Um, but mostly it was just like looking in the places, being willing to roll up my sleeves to just make a list of all the companies I wanted to reach out to. Um, I also like reached out to my network and basically just wasn't shy about asking for help and was like, can you introduce me to this company or this person? And what I found was like most people really do want to help. Like, and, and I think most people know um, that like it takes like introducing someone to a company or a person isn't a one and done thing. Like finding in the right job or opportunity is still kind of a numbers game. And so once you ask one person to make an intro, that person isn't going to be like, great, it's done. Don't ask me again. <laughs> I think most people know like, yeah, I'm happy to do it again for you. So I, I did, I tapped into that and, I, and I'm all, today like always happy to pay that forward whenever I can. But a lot of it was really just doing the work, just rolling up your sleeves, not being shy, asking for opportunities, but also pursuing ones on your own. That's amazing. And then when, when you got into the industry, did you feel that it was kind to Asian women? Like, did you did you feel any friction? Did you feel anything, um, any microaggressions, anything like that? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I do... I mean, I think, look, model minority, right? I think people expect that Asians work hard and are smart and good at math and all those things. And I, so 
in some ways that worked to my advantage, right? I think people people probably with their biases assumed that I would be smart or competent, which I think I think people I think that's a real thing, right? I think there's that. Um but I think with that, there's also the assumption of, well, you must have an insane work ethic. Like asking you to work weekends shouldn't be a big deal to you. Right. Like, you know, and I've definitely worked at a startup where they where they said things like out of office um automations aren't allowed. Wow. Like you just like don't we don't do that here. We're a startup. Wow. Or or things like unlimited time off, but you can't take more than two days in a row. Right. And it was like okay, well then can I get one day a week off? Like, oh, you can't do that either. And I was like, okay, so what is it? Yeah. <laughs> and then we started to ask, like, can you just give us three weeks vacation a year like most companies do? And they didn't even want to do that. They're wow. like, no, it's unlimited. So like there were those things that I think were kind of not even just directed at me, right? But like the broader, uh, this darker side of working in startups. Yeah. Um, but I will say that times that I have experienced microaggressions or just sort of um I would just maybe we'll say subpar treatment for my ethnicity and gender have been by other Asian women. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of and which was I think it was this mentality of like, hey, I ate a lot of shit and you have to also. Wow. Okay. You know, I think I think there was that. Because I think there was a lot of like, well, I worked my ass off. I did 80 hours a week. Yeah. Why don't you do it? If I could do it, so can you. Yeah. And that was something that was definitely That's more. Interesting. Yeah. That was hard to deal with because I was like, I, it's not me though. And yeah. that was a lot of, that's taken a lot of like time and energy for me to unpack and let go of because right. I don't want to be that for somebody else. For like sure. I don't want to tell somebody like I worked really hard and did this shitty thing for so many years. And now you have to, I, yeah. I, I think there's a way to mentor or manage people and, un and communicate that they have to pay their dues or, you know, do some hard work, yeah. but I don't think that's the answer. Right. Yeah. Like intentionally giving someone a shitty experience be just because that's what you endured. Do you, do you, that's really interesting because like, obviously in, in asking these questions, I run into all sorts of new things. Like, like I've, I've sort of never got that type of response. Do you think that's a person by person issue? Do you think it's a systematic issue? Like what do you, where, where do you think that comes from? I do think it's a little bit of both, right? I think, on a systemic level, like, you know, women are still underpaid relative to men, right? Like, um, you have fewer and fewer, you have fewer women executives compared to men. Like, none of those things are surprises, right? Um, and I think it's probably the women who are willing to do 80 hours a week, you know, forgo their maternity leave. They have to work late nights all the time those end up being the women who get rewarded, so to speak, with the higher paying jobs. And they've probably like just clawed their way to the top. And maybe on the individual level comes resentment maybe um, of like, I had to do this and it's not fair that it's easier for anyone else. Um, that's where I think it's on the individual level. Um, 
but I just hopefully, you know, these days we're seeing more of the tide turn and seeing more people who understand like once I'm in a position of power, it's not my job to gatekeep. It's my job to guide people through the gate, you know? And so I, I, and even on that, on that point, how, so someone listening, let's say they're going through that same thing where they're, you know, they have someone who is, 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 is basically forcing them to do a thing because they've, they've, they've had to do that thing. How do, how would you advise them to manage that situation? It's, it's basically a, a, a form of managing up or, you know, or if it's a peer, like how, would, what advice would you give them? I would say, I would say, know what you want, or at least work towards that and ask for it early and try to build a plan with your boss in reaching that. And then if you don't get to it in a, in a, in a reasonable time frame, then find a new job. Um, and I can speak that a little bit more specifically. It's kind of, kind of abstract still, but like if you're, you know, a manager, right. And you want to move up to director, you want to get promotion, you want to get promoted in a year or even less than a year. Right. The first thing is like, is it reasonable to expect a promotion within like six months? Right. So the first step would be, we'll learn the promotion and raise cycle. I think there are exceptions in any company, but by and large, like most companies, especially our, you know, larger companies, they have times of the year that's like, well, for instance, it might be March and September. This is when raises and promotions happen. And sure, thing there can be exceptions, but like, why bother trying to be the exception when you can just play by the rule book and use it to your advantage, you know? So it's like then start start there. Start by learning the rules first or the kind of the lay of the land. Look at high performers across your company. Like, when do high performers get promoted? And I say this because too often I've seen people who've just been like, I want to be promoted to manager in three months, period. And you're like, but if that's not how things work at a company, like, don't expect that you're going to be the unicorn exception. You could be, you know, you could, but don't expect it, right? Like, go for the normal cycle. So that'd be the first thing. Look at that and then communicate it with your boss. I'd say like a year out because that's a reasonable time frame. Maybe you could do it six months, just depending on where you're at with your skills and everything. Um, but I would say like had that proactive meeting with your boss, keep it separate from your usual one-on-one because -on -one, a one-on-one -on -one should be, that should be the time that you use to talk about the work stuff. Like, hey, I'm working on this project, have this roadblock, how do I move forward? Like that's the day-to-day -day work. For your career, your development, that's you deserve separate time for that. And you should ask for it. Like ask your manager, like, hey, I I really want to talk about my career development. Do you have time over the next couple of weeks to do this? And just schedule it, 30 minutes, 60 minutes, whatever's appropriate, maybe it's lunch. And then use that time to tell your boss, like, hey, I really want to move up to the next level. I think I can do it in a year. Do you agree, disagree? And what skills do you think I need to close that gap? And I think asking proactively, like there's not, unless your manager is a horrible, horrible person, like they're going to work, they're going to want to work with you on this. And then you can start to learn up front what skills they think are important that the person in that title or job function should have. And then, you know, with that, like also do your own research, like 
learn, like look at job descriptions of like the next level up. Like what do those job descriptions normally look like? What are some patterns there? And start to develop like, so that when you go to that meeting with your boss, you can say, hey, I think the person in this next level should do this or have these skills. Do you agree? So that you're also showing that you did, you, that you took the initiative to do the work too, and that you're not just asking to be spoon fed the next opportunity that comes along. No, I, I think that's really important, especially for the, for everyone listening, there is, there is this thing, the saying that says that the, you know, the, um, the, the closed mouth doesn't get fed. Right. And I think, I think what you're saying is that, and what you're saying basically is it is your job as the employee to make sure that you are, you are given a career path and goal and to make sure that your boss is, is it, you're, you're matching towards that and you're having those meetings because, and I think it also, it's regardless of whether you're in an uncomfortable situation where you're, whoever's treating you and authority is treating you poorly. I think this in general is good advice because sometimes you go to companies and there is no career growth. There is no plan. So you, you basically have to build one for yourself. And I, and I think you're right. The people who do that will actually get ahead faster. And if it, if, if that's what it takes to get out from underneath a, a terrible manager, then you have to do that or even get to the job that you want. And then, then within that company, or develop those skills to then get a, a different job. You know, you know. I think that's a very good game plan. What would you say? I, I run into this a lot. You know, I talk to a lot of women. Um, under, you know, women are not necessarily a minority, but they are underrepresented, and that's part of what what we built Urban Income to to address and the skills to teach. And even at some of the highest level CMO, they tell me that they've had a problem with asking for these types of things. So what do you, like you're uniquely like, I'm gonna go get, I'm gonna get that, doesn't matter, I'm gonna ask for, where do you think that comes from? That's such an interesting question. I I think it comes from my dad. Like my, like growing up, like my, it's just funny. My dad and my mom are in many ways very traditional. Um, I'm sure you, anyone can imagine a Filipino American in a traditional type of like, uh, I don't know, occupation or even just like attitude. And, but my dad has never, he, he's never treated me like, oh, you're a woman. Like you should just be at home and cook. I, he's never treated me like that. I mean, I think he's been like, yeah, you should cook, but like everyone should learn how to cook. <laughs> like he's never, he's never communicated like, because I'm a woman, I should do things this way. He's always treated me like an, as an individual. And he's always been like, if you want something, like it's on you to go after it. And, and with that, like we, even like with my, with my upbringing, for instance, like it kind of comes early, right? Where anytime I wanted something like a new toy or like I wanted to, whatever, if I wanted something, he would always say like, okay, like, well then write me an essay on why you deserve it. Or, 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 or it was like, okay, well, here are all the follow-up questions I have. If you want this thing, how does it, how does it further your development? Like, why do you need this? Um, and like, I wasn't like four years old and he was like drilling me because it didn't, didn't come from a place of like, uh, anger. It just, he was like, prove it. And so that just sort of became normal to me. And 
And it was a good way. <laughs> and the, even if he didn't read my little essays, <laughs> he probably at least saw like, oh, she actually wrote it, wrote out like four pages. She must really want this. Like, yeah. sure, you can have this new, like, this new, what did I even play? I played with kitchens when I was a kid. So you can have this new pizza set. Sure, I don't care. Um, so that's where it kind of starts. It starts from that. Um, and also, like, my, my dad's a small business owner himself. So he's also the mentality. And, like, you know, he came here in the, what, 60s, I think as an immigrant and like, you know, worked his way up from the mailroom, like pretty kind of textbook story of like worked in a mailroom, learned how to do accounting, eventually went to school. I think, I think he has his MBA. I don't, he might not even remember. <laughs> um, and is now a CPA and like has his own boutique firm. So he's been a go-getter his whole life. And so he's always just like, well, one told me, but also showed me like, you have to do these things and take these opportunities and open doors for yourself because no one's going to do it for you. Like, I think he was also clear about there will be people who will help you and find those people, but no one's going to just hand it off to you. Mm, absolutely. Uh, wise, wise words. Um, and let's let's quickly pivot and talk about Spark Toro. Uh, what, what are you doing there? How, do, how does... How does your software help uh, customers? And then what are you most proud of in the last three years? Yeah. So, all right. So this is kind of fun. I mean, work at, I work at SparkToro now, which we are an audience research startup. We help people do audience research through our tools. Well, we have one tool, really. And by this, we mean we help people find their audience's sources of influence, like the social accounts they follow, the YouTube channel they subscribe to, the podcast they listen to. And we also show you insights like what your audience is talking about publicly online. It's not really social listening because that's more real time. What we'll show you are we will show you trends like over the past couple of months, the topic of email marketing is really popular among B2B marketers. So we'll show you things like that. And what's unique about that is, you know, things like traditional keyword research that shows you what people are searching for, but it doesn't tell you who's searching for it or why or what they're doing with that information. We kind of fill in those blanks. And what I'll also say is, What's important to me about SparkToro is the way that the tool that we offer and the what we, the service that we provide essentially, like audience research, this was the way that I always intuitively approached marketing. And so when I, when I saw the tool and like what it did, I was like, oh, like this is exactly what I would have wanted. This is what I needed when I first became a marketer. Like... When I first became a marketer and was just learning about SEO and was learning like, here are the high volume keywords, I like I never really understood it. Like on like I, I knew what it meant, but I didn't understand. Like I was like, but how do you know who's searching for that? Like, okay, a lot of people are searching for the words like uh uh what like like craft coffee. Like, but are those people who want to drink it or people who want to make it? Like, who is that? Like, I just, I just didn't understand. And then 
you know, in a lot of a lot of SEO type learnings, it's like, yeah, then you make content on that thing. And I was like, but but for what? Like I I and this is this was like this is very much one of those like, am I an idiot? Like do why do I understand these things that everybody else seems to understand very well? Like I just don't get it. And so the way that I had approached content marketing classically was just or not classically, but in my version of it, I I always just like went to where my audience was hanging out. I consumed the content they consumed and then would be like, oh, this is really interesting. Here are some patterns I'm seeing in this industry that people are consuming. Here's what I think is next in the conversation. And then I would create content on that because I just thought like, isn't that what people want? And I, and I spent so many years with people just kind of looking at me like, that's an insane thing to do. Like, you don't know what people want. And I was like, but you can, you can figure it out. I'm like, if you're consuming what they're consuming, don't you have similar questions? And then maybe you can help them answer those questions. So that's why I'm so passionate about what we do at SparkToro because we make all that easier. Like what I used to do was like ask around, like, what are you reading? What are you listening to? And then I would... I would find all these things. I would find, I would consume them. And I still do that. But at the time it was all done very manually. It was just me asking around, hopping on calls with people who didn't want to talk to me. <laughs> um, but yeah. No. And, and I love, I love the tool. I love the software. Um, you really helped us build a publishing platform called Flavor Fix. And so we, so growth skills is a, growth marketing firm. We do like the SEO content market and all that stuff. We had a challenge of, of, of reaching the cannabis and CBD audience for a client do, using paid media and we couldn't. And then I said, this is an SEO opportunity, meaning using content to grow organically. And I was like, I know nothing about this industry. So, and by that time, Rand already had SparkTuro. So I started playing around and it opened up. It literally, we used, you, you Sparktura as the a reference point to see what are the top sites in cannabis and CBD. What are they talking about? What are they missing? And we built a we built a site that really catered to both cannabis, CBD, and alcohol. Because what we realized is all of these cannabis and CBD sites don't talk about alcohol. All of the big alcohol sites don't talk about cannabis. But from a behavior standpoint, people like weed and wine, right? The offset, and there's all these different layers of behavior that the, that overlaps, right? And if you look in the cannabis and CBD section, they have all these beverages now that are super popular. That are, So there's all this this overlap, and we would have never known that using like a SEO tool, you know, because you, you just don't see that stuff. So like it, that changed the game for us. And, it, and what I tell people is, and I'm going to speak at the Cannabis Marketing Association um, to teach literally to tell this story to these CBD and cannabis marketers. And what I tell them is like, it opens up a level of insight that you just not get. And, and it made us realize that it built performance into what we were building because then we generated our strain pages, for example, they, they cater. So if you look at a, a wheat or anyone's wheat strain page, wheat strain page, they don't tell, they tell you how it makes you feel, but we say it pairs with this kind of alcohol, it pairs with this kind of food, it pairs with this kind of music, because we know the lifestyle of what they're doing. They may be smoking a joint, you know, they're going to eat and then they're going to dance or do something. So it's like we, and it was 
you know, partially because of you, we found these insights and we just never would have would have been able to, to do that without you. So we really appreciate that. And then we've been using it. We've been, we've been working with you on, on our build out of Urban Income and, and our other platforms and for our clients as well. So great, 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 great work. Oh, that's awesome. That's so interesting too, because cannabis is so highly regulated. Like you, you can't target this audience in, in the, the in the that's, like with you can't just run a bunch of ads. Like it doesn't doesn't work that way. Yeah, that's so that's why your tool is so so useful because like we and we we've got this proficiency in like really hard industries. So like cannabis TV, it's hard. Like you, you can't pay for it. So what do you, you need extra insights? You need these these tools to really connect with the audience, and that's what you've been able to to do for us. So we really. Really appreciate it. Um, what are you most proud of that you've done in the past three years? Oh, in the past three years? Uh, I think I'm most proud of our digital events at SparkToro. So we've, we built out a, a monthly or so office hours series where we walk people through marketing strategy or tactics and then weave in how to do it with SparkToro as it's relevant. So it's sort of a mix. At times, it's a bit of a product demo, but we've structured it so that even if you're not a SparkToro user, you still get a lot of value out of attending. And and at this point, like we are able to get, you know, around a thousand registrants each time, which has been tremendous for us. And starting out this program, the series gave way to our digital summit, Spark Together. And we had our first summit last November, uh, November 2022, where we just had people like we 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 just kind of dug in and did our own our own kind of event. We wanted it to be very storytelling driven, um, so less on how to do X right or tactics for Y, and more about like stories or moments in marketers and founders' lives that like transformed how they do something, and. Because of the community had we had built and nurtured through office hours, we had this captive community of people who wanted to come. And so it was a very special kind of event where, well, one, it wasn't recorded or, you know, we didn't make it available as replays because he wanted people to attend live. And people were – and it also enabled the speakers to be more candid than they normally would if it were recorded. Cause they were like, we're like, this isn't being shared. Like this is just, it's, this stays here. So people got, so speakers got to be candid. They got to be more vulnerable and then attendees actually had to come. Right. So we had like, like all 300 people who bought a ticket came and they, they showed up and then it just made for like a really fun kind of spontaneous live experience. People were in the chat, like talking the whole time, supporting each other, connecting with one another. So that was a pretty, pretty great event that I'm really proud of because I, it felt as close to as it felt as close to as, in person as a digital experience could feel. That's amazing. Um, yeah. It's, there's so much in there too about the creating the build, the, the space to be vulnerable if because you don't record it that's really cool uh what did you wish you would do with your money sooner ooh i love this question i also love that that you have the menu and i want to talk about that but but uh yeah. which is your email marketing list but 
but answer this first. Yeah. So I was pretty good about setting up like a, a Roth IRA or have or participating in my in a company sponsored retirement uh, fund. So I'd always done that, which is great. Um, so one, I think it's really important to have that and to max it out every year, do as early as you can, because by the time you, you join the workforce, like your life is already like a third of the way over or a quarter of the way over. You got to save up. That's important. But the other thing I wish I did what or sooner was create like a high yield savings account. Um, Cause I'd always been pretty good about saving money here and there, but I just, I just had it in my bank account because that was just what I knew. It wasn't until probably my mid to late, probably late twenties that I learned about setting up like an ally account or you could do it with Charles, Charles Schwab, Capital One, um, where it's a regular, it's basically a regular savings account. You can take money out of it when you need it, but it has a higher, um, what is it? Higher yield or higher, higher APR so that you're saving, but so that it's uh, gaining interest. And it's not a, yeah, it's not a ton of money, but it's free money. And I think everyone should do that. Like, sure, if you, if you need like an emergency fund of like 5000 or $10,000 in your savings, your bank account, then fine. But put most of your money in the high yield savings account. Yeah. And what a, a good practice, Ally is really easy to set up too. And a good practice is just automate it, set it, let, let it go in and learn to live off of a, a lower, a lower amount of money. Um, and like you said, the, the higher it, you know, compounds, it, it increases in value over time. So having that, you know, having saving sooner is always best, but having that higher, higher, um, return, I think is, is, is pretty cool. Um, what else? Uh, I will also say something I did painstakingly for, I think it was a year, uh, was I tracked all my expenses manually in a spreadsheet. Really? I did. I, I know I, even back then, like I knew services like mint existed where it tracks it for you. But for me, this is what worked because if I have something that's totally automated, I won't look at it because yeah. my brain's like, yeah, it's over there. You can look at it whenever you need, but I don't actually look at it. But I highly recommend anybody spend like even just like I'll say like three months because a single month in your life could be a one off, right? It could be a weird month where you had gone to Costco the month prior. So you're not buying a lot of food because you were, you're already <laughs> set for the month. So that doesn't count. You need like three months of just track your expenses in a spreadsheet, even if it means just like, not that you have to write it down each time you buy something, but just go to your credit card statement and copy and paste it and read it and look at how much you're spending on everything. And I think, I feel like that's the only way to feel the pain of- Yeah, I was gonna say. Oh, yeah, like, right? You're like, why did if I you spend? You wanna stop spending, do this. <laughs> yeah, and then, you, and then you're gonna be like, dang, I spent like, I spent like $200 just by going to the bar last month. Like, yeah. did I need to do that? Like, did that, did, and, and it's not even just to be like, I'm never gonna do that again. It's just yeah. to be like, to it forces you to think about it and be like, did I, was this, was this something I really wanted to do? And maybe it was great. Good for you. But this is a higher chance that you'll feel that pain and you'll understand like, 
oh, here are the things that I really don't like to spend on, or here's what I do like to spend on. And like, for me, like I, I'm, I'm weird. Like I, I like comparison shopping at grocery stores. It's fun for me. I enjoy it. I like saving that money. Some of my friends think I'm an idiot for doing this. And they think, oh my gosh, don't look, just buy what you need and don't waste your time. And I'm like, I get it. That's you, but this is me. This is what I like to do. <laughs> or things like I don't like to buy coffee at coffee shops. I like making my own at home. But then the things that I do pay for, I will always pay for grocery delivery if I need it. If I'm going to order takeout and I just don't have time and I want to relax, I will pay the Uber Eats or DoorDash fees. Like I will always do those things. Yeah. But by knowing what I don't want to spend on, it opens up what I can spend on. <laughs> No, that's very good. You you know yourself very well. <laughs> Another bit of advice. I think Amanda has has learned herself what she will will, will put up with and what, what she won't put up with. And and that's pretty amazing. Any last bit of advice you would give to your, your younger self? I would say to my younger self, even though I've had three careers, right? Journalism cooking world, we'll say, and marketing, I would say try even more things. Like I, w I wish I tried even more things. Like I wish that I earlier on did an SEO blog side project. It was something I always said I would do, but I just never made time for it. I wish I did it earlier. I wish I experimented more. I wish that I left jobs sooner than I did and just worked at more companies um, just because I think it's healthy to try different environments, work with different people, and just grow as a person and as a professional. Um, so yeah, I think it's. But it's funny. I had I had three careers, and still I look back and go, "Oh, you should you should have done more experiments." <laughs> no, that that's good, and it's never too late to start that blog. That brings me to the menu because I see that you have that. And tell me about that because I think everyone should have some sort of side hustle whether it's to generate, like build your craft, your personal brand. Tell me about that. And I love your media kit. Your media kit set up, I sat back and I was literally hitting the play, like how to pronounce your name, <laughs> your last name. I was like hitting that, like just, cause it's so good. I was like, wow, <laughs> definitely. I was like, I'm taking so many notes on, on when I throw my site up. Um, That's so nice. Personal brand, but like I really, <laughs> I subscribe to the menu, I'm like, I read some of the one of the first posts. I'm really interested in that. So tell me, tell us a little bit about that uh, before we go. Yeah. Okay. Qu quickly on the media kit. I mean, thank you. But also, that was informed by years of being the event or podcast organizer, planner, and just feeling that that pain of like, yeah. oh, I got to find their headshot. Where's this thing? Yeah. Uh, I got, I'm going to do some research on them. Like, I wish it was all in one place. Like. That was the, the answer to that. So I'm glad that you found it very useful. What's um, funny too is that yeah. I'm, I'm, I have this, I'm speaking, like I said, in June and I'm in, I'm doing that. I'm like, oh, she has a short bio and a long bio. <laughs> and yeah. I'm here, I have it, but it's all in like Google Sheets. There's an old one and a new one. And then I spend like 30 minutes searching for it. And I was like, where's my headshot? And then I search for that. And it's just like, just put it on a page and, 
so brilliant. So yeah, cool. and it's just it's just listed out. Like it it's isn't so even good. like fancy. It's just it's just all there. Yeah. Um highly recommend. Yeah, and you need a short and long bio because yeah, I know. they don't what, always need that, it. They always alone. Yeah. My mind, like, she has a short and long bio, and then I was just hitting play. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, because Chichester just gets butchered all the time. I'm like, this is great. Yeah. This is so cool. Yeah. yeah. It, makes, and it, it takes up the awkwardness of someone saying, excuse me, how do you, how do you pronounce it? Which I never mind because yeah. it's not intuitive. You don't, you don't say other people's last names all the time. Why would you know? It's a totally fair question, but most people are uncomfortable to ask. So having an audio clip of yourself pronouncing your name is great. Um, okay. So there's that. As far as the menu, my email list goes, um, yeah, that's been like a fun side project I've had for a couple of years. That started out as I wanted to publish more online. Like I wanted to write online and I wanted to be accountable to a deadline. So I set up the newsletter. This was also an offshoot from being a student of the writing course called Rite of Passage. It's David Perel's cohort-based course where you kind of learn how to write online. So one of the projects or assignments was set up an email list or email newsletter. And so it was something I created basically to stay accountable to something. Um, I got my first 50 subscribers by emailing my network, like friends and family and was like, Hey, I'm doing this newsletter. Um, if you're interested, would love your support. If not, like, no worries. I'm not going to spam you. I won't put you on the list. And that was how I, how I did it. And didn't take it personally if anyone unsubscribed because everyone gets too much email anyway. It's fine. And I, I think I, I I just started out by committing to like doing one short essay on anything. Um, I didn't even mean for it to be marketing related at first. It was just anything. And then uh, a couple of links I found interesting and then a recipe because I'm always cooking anyway. So I felt like, well, I'm always making stuff up in my kitchen. So this is just me writing it down. Um, and then over time it became like, oh, I want to focus this on marketing. And so it's, so where it's different from the SparkToro content is like SparkToro content newsletter. That's my and SparkToro's point of view for the menu. It's things that I, as an individual, like what I think about something, something I've tested as an individual, um, where it's more of like. It's never, it's never really counter to what SparkToro would say, but it's more of just like, here, here's like me and my own little marketing world and what I think about things. And you do think that's obviously that's important to having a personal brand. Um, what, what I'm trying to get people who are audiences to know that you have your day job, build something on the side and, and grow it and grow it. And you don't have to monetize it, but know that eventually you could. Right. And I think that's, that's spot on with what you have. Um, which is pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's nothing else like it, it's it's fun to do, right? It's fun to have have something for yourself where it's your thing. You get to do whatever you want on it. No one can tell you what's wrong. You know, it's just your space. I think it's I think it's fun and healthy for everybody to have that for themselves. Absolutely. And last question, is there any any minority in your in your um in your network do you, that you think would be just amazing on this show um, who would drop gems? Anyone you have in mind? Yes. Uh, yes. A couple come to mind. Um, the first person that came to mind is my good friend, Adrian Shears. She's an entrepreneur or like she calls herself an accidental entrepreneur, uh, but she's a consultant, has her own sort of like boutique shop. Um, 
also, I think she's also an Adweek contributor okay. and awesome marketing, social media, PR pro. Uh, and I adore her. She's amazing. Okay, so we'll we'll touch base because I'd love love to have her on and uh, and hear her POV on the world, and then just have her bless our audience with with knowledge and information so that they could you know grow in their careers and um and really improve their income and and that's what I found the gift that we've been giving through growth skills we have a protege program and um and we're just teaching like SEO for me SEO really changed my life I was self taught. I, I love doing it. And when I realized that people would pay me for this, I was like, I didn't like, I went to school for journalism for, no, for creative writing. So I wanted to be a novelist and I'll write my book one day. But I realized that like, I didn't have to go to school for SEO. And so th for like, you know, a lot of people who don't have a college degree or anything like that, SEO is sort of like being an electrician or being a plumber. It's a trade. Once you learn that trade, you could apply it and really, really you know change get grow your income and really change your your family's life and even your community um so that's part of why we, we're doing this so any anyone who has that marketing skill especially in social media you know people are i'm pretty sure people are, are on instagram all day learn how to make some money from it right so i think that sort of skill is really really important but Amanda, thank you so much for uh, for being here today. I want to thank everyone for turning into the Urban Income Show. Um, I hope you found this episode informative and inspiring. Uh, please remember to subscribe to our channel, follow us on social media, and we'll see you on the next one. Thank you for watching and listening to this episode of the Urban Income Show. Make sure to subscribe on YouTube, follow us on social, and visit urbanincome.com.